Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Miranda Corcoran, and today I am delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Mark Leeds, author of the Vonnegut Encyclopedia, which was published in a revised and updated edition by Delacorte in 2016. So hi, Mark, and welcome to the show. Hello, Miranda. Thank you very much. So it's great to have you here, and it's wonderful to have the opportunity to discuss this very unique and very original publication. So I'm going to conduct this interview in a slightly different format. I usually tend to uh, discuss academic monographs, so we usually chart the course of an argument uh, throughout the interview, going through a book chapter by chapter. But because uh, you've actually produced this incredibly comprehensive encyclopedia, I've decided to adopt a somewhat different approach and discuss the project as a whole and hopefully talk to you a bit about where the project came from and how it developed. So I wanted to begin by asking if you could maybe tell our listeners a bit about yourself. What's your own background and what initially drew you to Vonnegut and to his work? Uh, very interestingly, I am, uh, well, I'll tell you, first off, I'm 64 years old. So it's, it's not as if this was, uh, a random thought and I worked it out in my twenties and it was done. Um, it took over almost 35 years from beginning to end between the beginning of research. And the truth is, Miranda, it did start out as the product of a sort of monograph because I was writing my dissertation. And uh, at the University of Buffalo for Leslie Fiedler. And I won't get into the first topic I had. It had nothing to do with Vonnegut, but I was, it had to do with science and literature. I was getting a great education. But after a year, I wasn't writing anything. And Fiedler said to me, so what do you want to do? And I told him, I said, Kurt Vonnegut. I said, really? And he knew him, but he didn't tell me right away. And he said, well, what is it you want to write about? And I said, all of the novels. And he looked at me a little bit weirdly. <laughs> uh, and he said, well, what is it about them that you think you want to write about? I said, I, I have found what I think is the narrative structure of all of his novels. And Fiedler said, but he's alive. How do you know that he's going to keep to that? And I said, I don't think he can do it any other way. And to which he liked that answer because Fiedler was rather iconoclastic also. And then I had a fight with the English department about writing this because he was a living author. And again, what do I do if he changes his mind and switches it up? The truth of the matter is he never did switch it up. He wrote a couple of more books after my dissertation. He kept the same structure. Um, and I, I'm looking now for a publisher so I can redo my dissertation, add the extra couple of novels uh, that went to it, which I think really proved my original thesis. And it had to do with um, the title of it was uh, 
I, I want to okay. get this all straight. The naive, schizophrenic, resurrected structure in the novels of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, the head title of it was What Goes Around Comes Around. The rest of that was all subtitle. And so the, the basic structure that I saw was uh, each novel begins with a new naive in a real French term, a real innocent one. And then through experiences, learns a little bit about the world, not necessarily, uh, not, not that anybody does, but learns enough about the world to get along. And at some point, there is a break in the narrative and there is an underground episode. There's only one novel in which there's not an underground episode, and that is uh, Rosewater. In that novel, however, there is a gap in the narrative of one year while Elliot Rosewater is treated in an Indianapolis mental facility because a year before that, as he was driving in on a Greyhound bus, he imagined seeing Indianapolis going up in a tornado of flames similar to what uh, Dresden experienced. And the other side of this resurrection motif, if you will, for, for Kurt, it's not really a motif. If somebody's trying to copy Jesus and have this underground episode, yeah, I'd call it a motif. For Kurt, it's, it's really the way he understands the world. He went underground, and when he came back up, he had more questions than answers. And so the, the end of it always leaves us with a character, whereas we would expect an epiphany, he doesn't have one. And it's sort of a sign of his, not loss of religion, but lack of, that there's really nothing left for him to realize except the conundrums of this world. So that's where I get the naive, schizophrenic, resurrected structure. And it, it's not, as I say, a copy of Jesus. It's a copy of Kurt's own experience uh, during World War II in Dresden. Well, what happened was, this is a long way around to the first book. What happened was I'm busy writing all of this and I'm taking reading notes of everything. And of course, I realize, you know, I think I could do what Michael and Molly Hardwick did for Dickens. And I, I wrote a Dickens thesis for my master's at NYU. And I owned the book, uh, The Dickens Encyclopedia by Michael and Molly Hardwick. Um, and I loved it. And I even thought I could do maybe better or different. And um, so I just sort of kept that in the back of the my mind. And after my, uh, I went through my dissertation and earned my degree and everything. I waited about six months. It was December of 87. I wrote Kurt Vonnegut uh, a letter. Uh, I had his address from Leslie Fiedler. And I uh, told him that I, I needed his permission to do this extensive quoting because my original thought was to make it not just an encyclopedia, but also a concordance. So you could look up and see... Um, particular words, symbols, phrases, people, whatever, and how they were used in all instances. And the first book was done that way. The second book, because it was bigger, because there were more novels involved, as well as 
I went back and revised a lot of things. We kept major sections of the concordance and we left the, uh, the, the references for where you could find the other um, sort of innocent ones, the ones that really wouldn't mean much, but you could still look them up if you wanted to. Um, and that's how I started to write the first one. The, the interesting thing about when I wrote to Vonnegut, he wrote back in less than a week. He was an, a ridiculously good correspondent. Um, if you weren't prepared to keep up with wow. his pace, don't write him. <laughs> um, so he wrote back in wow. less than a week, and it was extremely friendly. And he said, sounds like a wonderful idea. I have no idea why anyone would want to spend that much time on my work. But if you have that kind of time, go for it. And oh, by the way, I don't even know what I can legally say yes to anymore because of all of these contracts I've signed over the years. So here's the name, address, and phone number of my lawyer. And I've sent along your information to him. You two should speak, but I've already told him I want this to go ahead. You know, I came home from work that day when I got that mail. And the next morning, uh, I think it was before 9 a.m., I got a call from Donald Farber, Kurt's attorney. And uh, although he was from Nebraska, he sounded like a New York longshoreman. So so I understand you want to do a book about Kurt. (laughs) Oh, my God. And I thought I was dealing with the mafia. (laughs) He scared the hell out of me. And then when I met him, he's like five foot nothing. Um, and he, but he, a, a really great guy. Unfortunately, we, we buried him a couple of years ago. He was 94. Um, but he was, you know, completely backing my idea. He knew that Kurt was excited about it. And truly at the time, the, the two biggest obstacles I had were uh, learning enough software because that was being developed elsewhere on how to make a full text database. This is 1987. And then um, I had a lot of people, um, graduate students among them, but certainly some of the faculty uh, at Buffalo wondering how am I going to go ahead and write an encyclopedia for a guy whose work is still going on? And I said, jokingly, well, I'm just getting a jump on things. (laughs) This does seem to be a bit of an ongoing controversy, uh, this idea of working on someone who is still alive and is still producing work. Um, I think it's it's possibly less controversial today, but it it seems like at the time you were working, this was something that was quite unique. It was not only quite unique, but I was doing a one-author dissertation, and I was doing all of his works. And at least at Buffalo, that was odd. And uh, I remember when I went to the graduate department chair, I had to write a special letter explaining why I should be able to write my dissertation. And there were two kickers to it. One was about five years earlier, somebody had written a master's thesis on Dickens, excuse me, on Vonnegut. And so they had precedent there. And the other part, really the bigger part, was that Leslie Fiedler was the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Uh, Whatever Leslie wanted, 
happened. So he, because he thought that what I was doing on, you know, 12 novels at that point uh, was plenty and, and would certainly prove a literary point. So they left me alone and I wrote, wrote for Leslie through all of the uh, years when the, only the first edition was out. And then I had a couple of critical books uh, done with Peter Reed came out. People were still wondering at that point, gee, it's fantastic that you wrote the encyclopedia, but didn't you do it too early? I mean, and then, you know, 2007 came and he passed away. I got my rights back in 2006. And I said, I I kept telling those people all along, well, he has slowed down. Almost everything about the novels that you want, you could find uh, within that first edition. And so when when he passed... Uh, and I was already uh, working on getting a new contract for a second one. Um, I mean, aside from the sadness of it, uh, people understood that I had a good deal of my work in hand already. And no matter how I was going to revise it, I was probably only the only one at that point equipped and ready to put something like this together because I had already done it. Of course. Um, and it's not really the kind of thing you can teach somebody. You, you sort of have to think about it, uh, not as the author. Um, you're willing to accept whatever problems the construction of an encyclopedia gives you. Uh, but you have to think about it from the reader's perspective. What are they expecting to find? How useful will it be to get from point A to point Z? Because really, in Vonnegut's books, uh, which is why we're talking about it, as people show up, places show up, symbols show up in each and every book. So how does that alter? Well, I had a good start on showing everybody that. And so when I revised it, um, not that it was easy because, trust me, the last couple of books presented their own problems. Um, I mean, Timequake was really quite a deal. Uh but it also spurred me at that point to do things that I didn't get to do the first time around, such as provide a complete bibliography for Kilgore Trout. Oh, yeah, of course. And that's, a, that's another excellent resource, actually. Yeah, and, and that, was, that alone was so much fun to work on. Um, and I, I tried to give little snippets about what each of the stories were about. I even give hints about stories that were unattributed but certainly sounded like they they oh, should excellent. have been and they all traps. have the best titles as well uh, which you know it, it's excellent to have them all in one place <laughs> oh thank you and and then i did and because kurt did something differently at the end of his life with um uh a man without a country and god bless you dr kevorkian um even like kevorkian was a, a series of radio pieces for WNYC, a public radio station in New York. So the question was, if these were one-offs and done just as a lark for some fundraising activity, they're put in a book, how do you make sense of it all? And so I, instead of breaking everything out from that book, I dealt with the book and all of the uh, chapters, if you will which are 
all dedicated to one individual in that time. Uh, I, I discuss why he picks all of those people in the succession that he does. Um, and then I did a similar thing for, uh, a man without a country because, uh, I tell people now when they say, where should I start? I say, I don't even like saying this, but start at the end. If you really want to understand where he's coming from, his philosophies are all here. His narratives, yeah, those are the novels. But all of the ideas he plays with are in that that final book of his. Yeah, I've actually found that incredibly useful for teaching and for framing discussion of his text, because you're right, all of his philosophies are right there. And he really does expound on a lot of the, I suppose, the recurring ideas that pop up throughout his body of work. You also get a a nice, because what I like about it is he doesn't update his language into the 2000s for that one. He's still from the Midwest, and he talks about you know, dweebs. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's, it's not as one could expect. I mean, I've heard him speak in, uh, in private and yeah, he could go on a blue streak if he wanted, but he didn't do any of that. Uh, He, he simply tried to deal with it uh, as a reasonably educated man living late in his life in the 21st century. And you left to excuse me, but this shit doesn't make sense. And, uh, and so, but he wrote it in a way that people could understand it and not be offended by the language. Um, and so then if you wanted to go back, you could almost go back. I wouldn't say any novel cause you have to get used to some of the narrative structures, but you could go back to many of them and understand this, this was not a momentary, uh, thought for him. This, this was a lifelong obligation to get at what he thought were the, uh, needed correctives or at least things that needed to be looked at to help us live in a saner society. Yeah, he definitely, his work and his philosophies, they do have that sort of humanistic impulse and this desire, I think, to make the world and to make us better. But I did promise you a cigar story. So very quickly. Oh, you did. Yes. Yes. After I finished my dissertation, I got a, a position at East Tennessee State University, as did my wife, who was also a professor not of English, but of audiology. And um, I signed that first book contract with Greenwood Press in Connecticut, uh, well-respected at the time, academic press. And I uh, called Leslie up and I told him what happened. And he thought that that was fantastic. And I called back because I didn't want to speak with him. I wanted to speak with his secretary with whom I had become good friends. And I said, Joyce, what cigars is he always chomping on in his office? And she's told me that they're Connecticut stogies. So where I lived in Tennessee, there was this wonderful tobacconist and I bought a box of Tennessee stogies. Unknown caller. Oops, sorry about that. And I took out, You're fine, I took worry. out um, one of the cigars as you, I am not a smoker. And okay. um, I put a letter into the cigar box for him, and then I sent it to him. And cigar boxes being what they are with all that cellophane around it, it actually stuck to the top 
of the lid when he opened it. He didn't see it right away because his eyes lit up on all those stogies. And then it was only after he was in the middle of the first stogie that he opened the box again and he saw the letter. Um, and I said, I have no better way to thank you for what you've done for me than to at least vicariously share a stogie with you. <laughs> oh, that is a, yeah, that's that is why a I took one of them and I smoked it. Got sick as a dog. <laughs> oh God! Of course, yeah. If you're not used to it, but it was obviously. it was uh, celebratory, and this was before I wrote anything. This was just on the signing. Um, but you need things like that to keep you going. Absolutely, definitely. So, um, just going back to the fact that the encyclopedia itself arose out of a dissertation you wrote on Vonnegut. What was it about Vonnegut as a writer that drew you to him and made you want to write about his work? Well, I'm glad I mentioned that I'm 64 years old because (laughs) having been born in 54 and being old enough to have marched in and been tear gassed at anti-war rallies in the second half of the sixties and early seventies, um, We were all trying to figure out why the world was so screwed up. And I'm certainly not the only person who had those questions as a reader. And I did fall into Vonnegut by accident um, on a trip to Greenwich Village with my older brother. It was the first and only time he ever took me on a trip. And uh, I found Mother Night. And there was a blurb on the back of it because it, it wasn't about Dresden, but it did reference Dresden and 135,000 people being killed. And um, I had been brought up on every war movie there was. I felt at 12 years old, I could have written a history of the World War. So it was crazy to me. How could I not hear about this? So I bought that book. And of course, it wasn't the Dresden book, but it set me up for a lot of interesting questions. I mean, I read uh, the Nuremberg Trials when I was about 14, around the same time. Um, I was reading uh, American Supreme Court Justice uh, Douglas around the same time. I thought I might become a lawyer in the future. Um, and so the, But the questions of social justice, peace, um, civil rights, women's rights, uh, these days, it's much more of an immigrants' rights issue that we're, we're dealing with. All of these things made me a political reader, if you will. And uh, I didn't, although I had been a Dickensian, you know, up until I, I decided to switch to a Vonnegut dissertation, I think that my uh, interests in Dickens were from the same materials. It was the... Uh, horrible conditions of the working poor in Victorian times. Um, I was absolutely enthralled by everything I was reading from Dickens and all the other Victorian essayists. Uh, I was rather oddball in the English department for that because people were either Shakespeareans or they wanted to be poets. And here I was, this guy who was into Dickens and Chaucer. Um, And it's funny because when I look back and I had 
taught Chaucer, I, I think one of the wonderful things about Chaucer, um, among the many wonderful things about Chaucer, is simply that general prologue and seeing this wonderful parade of classes. And he discusses these people. Um, never demeaning them, although some of the descriptions aren't necessarily uh, complimentary, but they, but they are as, as if you were sitting on a bus and just looking at people around you and making up your own biographies for them. It was that kind of social understanding about what was happening around him for Chaucer, for Dickens, for Vonnegut. Um, that I think was the only thing that really interested me uh, in literature growing up. Uh, I remember in high school, I had a sophomore English teacher who was teaching us Tale of Two Cities. And she taught it using that as a way to discuss Vietnam. And I have always felt that the best we could do as teachers of literature was to explain that writers don't write to crawl up on their own assholes and die. They write to explain not the truths that they see necessarily, they may have some, but at least the conundrums of life. That's a, that's a really wonderful way I think of describing what Vonnegut does actually. Yeah. And, and so one, we are all stuck almost daily with that question, what do I do now? How do, I, how do I make this decision? What is my value system at play that I can now exercise in making a correct decision for what I'm doing? Um, and I taught that way. And yeah, I mean, grammar and everything else was there, but my feeling was if you didn't have a reason for reading that particular book, you might as well move on to something else. And so I always tried to find something in a book that was worthwhile. And thankfully, Kurt makes it easy as pie. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, so I think we kind of touched on this issue a little bit earlier, but over the years, there have been numerous academic studies of Vonnegut's work. But your book is obviously quite different. Rather than a conventional study or analysis, what you've produced instead is a very comprehensive A to Z guide of Vonnegut's work. Could you tell us why Vonnegut's writing in particular might require this kind of guide or might lend itself to this kind of guide? What is it about Vonnegut that demands, I guess, maybe this kind of encyclopedia? Well, anybody from the... I, I was going to say the first reading, but from the second reading of a Vonnegut book, you realize, hey, I saw this before, or I heard about this before, or I think he did this before. And uh, Kurt, you know, he's not alone in this. I mean, Faulkner you know, did quite a bit of it, but Kurt made a whole world of uh, recurring people, places, things like birds, staircases, um, because they were a part of his life. And he used them oftentimes in similar ways uh, in terms of the symbols, but people who would reappear um, 
sometimes they would have some association with uh, the person that you met before, but other times there's absolutely no relationship between the two. And, and I, the most outstanding example of that is from the short story Harrison Bergeron, mm-hmm. where you have Diana Moon Glampers, who's a rather uh, authoritarian, fascist security head, and she winds up, you know, shooting Harrison Bergeron and the other dancer at the end. But you have the same Diana Moon Glampers in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, who's a rather aged, ill, innocent, probably touched in the head old lady who gets frightened by thunder and is worried about her kidleys, as she says. And yet, Elliot is always sure to be kind to her on the phone and to help her out with either words of encouragement or money or something. But these are not the same people. But you do have the same name. Now, I'll admit I have asked Kurt a few, and I kept it really to a few, questions about his texts. And the reason was simple on my part. I didn't want to be one of those people, and I had seen them, who wanted him to sign everything, including their underwear, and ask him every little question. What did you mean here? What did you mean there? That's what the books are for. My relationship with Kurt was, he was like a long lost uncle. He used to call me up and leave messages on my answering machine, knowing I was teaching and my kids would come home, little kids, and daddy, 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 you have to listen. There's a machine, a machine message for you from Kurt. And so we'd all gather around the machine like these were words from God. Um, and I tried to explain to them that, you know, he's just an interesting guy and he took an interest in my work. I took an interest in his work. And so he gave me permission, but in order to explain what Kurt is doing, it's hard enough in any one book. Um, I never tell somebody, just open up Slaughterhouse as a first novel and read it. Um, that would be cruel. <laughs> um, but I, I do say to them that what you're going to find uh, are ideas that will be repeated elsewhere if, if you decide to pick up a second book. And if you really want to see what an art he, he made out of it, I tried to track some of that. And then you could understand that, you know, writers sit on their butts at home and they're alone. And Kurt often complained about that. But the truth is that up in his head, he had quite a community of people he was constantly returning to. That's, you know, that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot recently with regard to Vonnegut's work. And I feel like one of the things that is so unique about it is, as you say, how he keeps returning to the same community of characters. And he really does create this sort of single intertextual universe. As you said, his books share characters and locations and symbols, even brands and products. And I think and I think in an age when audiences are used to, you know, these big shared cinematic universes, you know, for example, the popularity of the Marvel movies and, you know, DC comics films, you know, it's something that I think to a contemporary audience, it's not that unusual to find these massive, all-encompassing shared universes. But I think at the time that Vonnegut was writing, this idea of creating 
a universe that extends beyond one text into a number of them was still very unusual. Do you think this aspect of Vonnegut's work was in some way prescient? Has it influenced our popular culture in the long run? Well, if to say it was prescient that he planned it that way because he saw it was going to happen, um, I'm not smart enough, nor would I conjecture what he would have said to that. Um, But I do think there is something to be said, uh, and I don't think anybody, even Ginger Strand with her great book about the Brothers Vonnegut at GE, um, even though he did work in public relations and he did have some lifelong friends from that field, uh, there may have been an influence about uh, every time you saw a GE ad in the 50s and the 60s here in the States, it was, um, you know, we build the future. And this was a constant recurrent theme that they had. Now, whether or not that recurrence from one ad piece to another, to another, to another, is what made him feel he needed to also repeat, that would be, as I say, just be complete conjecture. But I, I do think that he found, there's no question because he wrote it, he definitely found a community that he kept drawing upon. And even though, let's say, Diana Moon Glampers is the most extreme case where the same name is used and there's nowhere near the same person, um, that's not true for somebody like Kilgore Trout or even Howard Campbell. They change from book to book. You see different aspects of them, but that wouldn't be very much unlike meeting somebody at a party and then six months later seeing them at a barbecue. And you kind of pick up the conversation, but not in the same spot that you were, but now you realize something else about them. And I think that's what Kurt did. He went back and had barbecues with people and they came back. That's a wonderful and analogy. They came back altered. But they but these were his people. Um I mean, I know Dickens used to talk about Copperfield being his only child, and I, I never had that conversation in those words with Kurt. Um but my only and this I will surmise, my only reason my only saying for his coming back again and again to people, places, things is that this, these were the materials that he used constantly like Legos to try and make new structures to understand things all familiar in their handling, but all a little bit different with each new structure. That's such an interesting, a very romanticized way of me to me to look at it, but you need something to keep you going for 35 years on these things. No, I think that's a wonderful way to look at it, actually. I think there is a sense that when you come back to characters, there is something different about them as if you're glimpsing a different facet. So there's, I, I guess, a recurring personality, but there are also different aspects and different facets of characters. And it is something, I think, that is so unique about Vonnegut's work in many ways that he does create this immense shared universe this immense fictional community. And it, it's something I think maybe that we often associate with genre fiction and, you know, genres like fantasy and science fiction, where authors do create these, you know, epic sprawling universes. But I think there's an element of that in Vonnegut's work as well, but I think in a perhaps in a more humanistic kind of way. 
Um, so I want, and, oh, yeah, sorry. And Vonnegut carries it across 14 novels rather than creating one universe and then setting it aside. Absolutely. Uh, so just to return to the encyclopedia itself. So the edition that is available now is the second edition. And I was wondering, could you say a little bit maybe about how the encyclopedia has changed since the first edition was published in 1994? And also, why did you decide to revise it at this point? Why in 2016? I always wanted to revise it since the first time I wrote it, not because I was upset with it, but because I knew, sadly, that there would come a time when either Kurt would call it quits and really mean it, or he would be gone. And that's not the reason why I wrote the first one, so that I could get dibs on it. Um, I wrote the first one because that was my interest. But when I realized that uh, very few of these types of works ever get produced, um, and I think for good reason, uh, there are some people who really cry out for this kind of treatment. And although... Kurt wasn't loved by everybody. Uh, I still felt that, I mean, for me, he was the most important writer in the post-World War II era. I know other people will pick a whole lot of other people. They can write their books. Um, But I felt that what he was doing, what his concerns were, uh, were the most important issues of my day and were probably the most important issues of any era because it really didn't matter. You know, if you say war, it's always war. It doesn't matter if you get killed by, you know, a chemical agent or you're shot and slowly dying. The end of war is always the same thing. But what, what Kirk did was take this traumatic life of his uh, he got balled up in it and it all, he, he stayed true to his themes his entire life. And that was the betterment of mankind. Um, and he did it in all these different ways. I felt, um, I, I knew few people who could read one Vonnegut and put it down. So if somebody was reading three or four, maybe five novels, and then they were asking me these questions because they knew about the dissertation, it seemed like, man, you know, I'm, this is the person who needs this. Um, and I felt that because he is such a special author, um, this would be a wonderful share. <laughs> uh, you don't do something like this for this many decades and think you're ever going to retire on the money that you might make out of it. Far from it. But... You need something to keep you going along. And in my case, I think it was just simply the the same feeling I had about teaching. And that was I wanted to help somebody figure out a way to better understand what they were looking at and maybe make use of it in new ways so they can create new knowledge. And I don't know, that sounds rather old librarian dusty kind of stuff, but really that's, that's, you know, Pink Floyd, you know, it's just another brick in a wall. It's just one book in a, in a, in a library. Um, but it speaks to certain people who have these interests and 
on on top of which are just absolutely intrigued by Vonnegut's voice, which is a whole other thing. Of course. Um, so I was just wondering as well, creating such a comprehensive guide to a universe as rich and complex as Vonnegut's must have been an immensely challenging process. Can you talk us through how you went about researching and compiling the encyclopedia? Uh, when did you start work on it? I think you said um, it took 35 years in total. So can you talk a little bit about that process? I received my doctorate in 87, and by then I had already decided I wanted to do this. And toward the end of the writing and just before my oral defense, um, I was doing some research on uh, software that would be suitable to create full-text databases. And I found a small article in a journal uh, about a piece of software called WordCruncher, built by, of all places, Brigham Young University. Um, And I don't know if your European listeners are knowledgeable about Brigham Young, but it is the Mormon University, basically, in the United States. And their whole deal is to try and show, still, how everybody in the world is related, and we can all trace our roots back to Adam and Eve. So what they've done is... uh, I mean, they've done a lot of controversial things, such as um, baptizing uh, the names of Holocaust victims. Uh, They have some weird ideas. But in terms of computer science, what they wanted was a way to uh, do two things. Uh, One was use it for their own humanities purposes, that it's a way to to shove in data from many different sources and then to be able to pick out their repetitions so that they could find people. It was that that crazy. But in order to market it, they didn't do it that way. They marketed it as a science tool because at the time, uh, it was the early stage of the Human Genome Project and scientists were looking for ways to catalog scientific data in a way that would allow them to see repetitions. And this software did it. And I know that's a very dry explanation of how this all came about, but it also determined that I had to buy a PC and and not an Apple computer at the time because the software was only available for an Apple. And so I did that. And um, I had to do a quite sacrilegious thing. I had to go to a book binder and reverse oh. bind all of my paperbacks. I had to use their, their big paper cutter and cut off all of the spines of the books. And then I fed them into a Kurzweil text scanner, which was at the time, Kurzweil, big name still, um, he, he came up with the first highly accurate text scanner software as well as machine. I made friends in, I was teaching in East Tennessee in Johnson city. I made friends with a saleswoman in Nashville about four hours away from me. And she let me come and use her machines. And I scanned in every page of Kurt's books. And then I had to proofread them from the screen to the page make sure I had everything correct because 
even if you say, oh, it's 98% correct, 2% in a book is a lot of correction. Um, so I had to proofread everything. And then I had to, uh, according to the WordCruncher software, um, put in some tags and other things. And computing was so slow at the time. The first time I ran the database, it took three and a half hours. Um, it's I have it in its third iteration now in something called Wordsmith. Uh, it was created by somebody out of uh, England. Um, and I'm trying to get it into a fourth iteration now in a new software uh, so I can keep the database current. But I have the only legally authorized copy of all of Kurt's work in one spot in one database electronically. I signed papers to that. Um, and of course, now we have electronic copies of his books, but the database itself is an immensely rich tool to use. Um, and so that enabled me to do things. Um, I'm opening up the first edition, actually. And so when I, I'm looking at a page here on the great becoming, Sirens of Titan, page 39, line 12. Things fly this way and that, my boy, Rumford said, with or without messages. It's chaos and no mistake for the universe is just being born. It's the great becoming that makes you the light and the heat and the motion and bangs you from hither to yon. Now, that great becoming is a great concept. It's only used once in all of his books in that one spot in Sirens of Titan. But in other books um, where, let's say, the same thing is mentioned throughout the book, I have all of those citations as well. And then in those cases where people, places, things, you know, show up in multiple books, I show you that as well. Um, and, and, it, and you don't have to do it. As you said, it's A to Z. It's not book by book. So um, somebody might be mentioned in Rosewater, let's say, and not show up again for six books. Uh, but if you look it up in my book, you'll see their Rosewater appearance as well as their appearance six books later in the other texts. Yeah. So it makes it easier for people to, I didn't think of it this way before, but <laughs> jump in time, if you will, between the books um, to see where things are and, and how they were kept or muted or changed in some way um, so that if, if you really want to find it, you know, something about birds or something, you know, it's all there. Um, so this was, uh, yeah, my idea was to put them all in one spot in, in between one set of covers. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a book as well. Your encyclopedia is a work that, in addition to being really indispensable to academics and researchers and teachers, it's also just wonderful for casual fans. The tone that you use is, I think, one that will appeal to casual readers and fans of Vonnegut's work, as well as, um, as, well as academics and those who are perhaps more invested in serious research. But was there an aspect of compiling the encyclopedia that you found to be particularly challenging? Like what was the, the most difficult aspect of compiling this work? For a long time, it seemed endless. 
And, you know, there were a lot of decisions that I made about things to include or not include. Uh, and of course there are errors that I know about, um, of omissions usually, but not many. And I do say that humbly, but, um, until somebody gives me a, you know, 12 page list, um, I think the hardest thing about it was knowing that this is hard now, knowing that I had tied up my intellectual life, my professional life, and my family life in something that that was open ended. Um, and even though I wrote articles along the way so that I could advance in my field and get promoted and things like that. Um, people always said to me, Oh, having signed for this book is going to mean more than 10 articles, uh, professionally. And I didn't know if that was true or not. I just knew that I, uh, I enjoyed large scale work more than, you know, chapter work. Um, and I think just sitting, by myself, often in the middle of the night, doing this, um, I don't know. I, I think once I spoke to Kurt, uh, I had a bond with him that even though I was still writing that first edition, I felt obligated to finish it. And he put this faith in me. He said yes right away. He didn't know who I was. Um, and... I think it was th this bond I had with him from early on that said to me, well, it'll be worth it to me and the 15 fans that get to see it. Um, but I, I, I really felt compelled that I had to, I was obsessed. My kids will tell you, I was obsessed. I used to go on vacation years ago. I rented a uh, luggable 15 pound computer. I would work in the mornings out by the, you know, in, in a beach house, kids would be at the beach in the afternoon. I'd go join them. But, um, it was the most rigorous thing I ever did. And I never thought I could do this, something like that, but I just, you do a little bit every day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think ultimately though, it obviously has paid off because what you have now is this incredible I suppose artifact in a way, this incredible um, guide to Vonnegut's incredible universe. So I think it's something that, you know, obviously will be invaluable to, to more than just 15 fans. Um, it's obviously something that will be useful to so many people. Um, I actually wanted to ask you as well, I found that one particularly useful and interesting aspect of the encyclopedia is that it also serves as something of a glossary of Vonnegut's various uh, neologisms. Um, and indeed, over the course of his career, he coined a number of words like charis and foma, for example. Why do you think Vonnegut had such a pronounced tendency to to coin words? Why was he so eager to play with language in this sort of creative manner? Well, this is pure conjecture because this is not something I spoke with him about, but the way it makes sense to me is Kurt always had a uh, kind of 
not just curiosity, but he kind of like a sly curiosity. He wanted to see around the corners of things. And, but he, he realized that some of the things he was trying to get at didn't really have the right word for it, like FOMA. Um, live by the little lies that make you happy and healthy. We all do that. We call them white lies, things like that. But he called it FOMA, and it sticks because now it's something that Vonnegutians can use as their own vocabulary word, and they know what it means. Uh, they know how to use it. Um, and it's true, yes, we all know how to use the, the phrase white lies, um, but this is now his stamp on it. There are other words uh, like caress. I do know the derivation of that one. There was a Greek family living on Cape Cod, not far from where he lived, and they had a mailbox with their name on it. He simply used the name and made it into something else. Ah, and I got that. I got that story from his son Mark. Ah, and do do you have a personal favorite um, Vonnegutism or a personal favorite term or word derived from his Absolutely. work? Absolutely. Um, and my daughters now live with this, and uh, the one who has children is trying to pass that along. And that is, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. And even though those are Uncle Alex's words. They live because Kurt kept them alive. And uh, I, I think I mentioned to you in, in some electronic communications that five years ago I had a very bad surgery. Uh, I was supposed to die. And my younger daughter read Sirens of Titan to me while I was in coma. And even though that was my favorite phrase before the surgery since then I absolutely look around at everything and get people to exclaim with me if this isn't nice I don't know what is because you have to be present and it's true there's a lot of heartache in the present but when you when you find things that are joyful um, note them Make them last as long as that thing that aggravates you and hangs with you for the rest of the day. And that kind of optimism, I know uh, I always think of Kurt as a pessimistic optimist. Um, he, he always started his books with a new naive, if you will. Somebody who just doesn't know anything and... You know, like every tabula rasa, things get written on them and they react in certain ways. And then the conundrums of life have to be answered. Uh, and that's where, of course, Kurt's books get the most interesting. But he always comes back to somebody who's innocent, who he was at one time in his life. And through the war uh, and that craziness, and then, you know... It's not just one trauma. It's losing his sister and then his, or his brother-in-law first, 24 hours later, his sister adopting, you know, twice the size of his family, not making any money really until the end of the 60s. Um, 
this is a guy who didn't often have those nice times once he grew up. He was really trying to scrap it together. Um, I mean, Mark Vonnegut is always famous for saying, you know, when people ask him, what was it like to, to grow up with a famous author in a house? He goes, he didn't become famous till I went to college. He was sitting on his ass, you know, throwing paper balls at the wastebasket, you know, when he didn't like something. Um, it's not a glamorous life. Uh, it's not easy for the children, to be sure. Um, and Kurt, it's interesting that Kurt made it his business to care about humanity probably more closely than he did his own family. Um, I, I once had dinner with, uh, my attorney was also Kurtz as it turned out. Um, and I was having dinner with him a few years before he passed away, the, the attorney. And I was telling him how Kurt would always on the phone ask me about my daughters and he'd mention them by name and he would send them these beautiful paintings as gifts and he's cracking up. And I saying, what's so funny about that? He says, Mark Vonnegut used to always say he could line up all of his grandchildren and have difficulty naming them all. So, yeah, I mean, he loved lots of things and people and he tried to keep them in order. And I think that's where the, the repetition of names came about. It was a universe he could hold on to. Um, and he, he just cared so much about the people in that universe and what they were going through that it's, it seemed to make sense to, for the sake of other fans, that's how I looked at it, that they, sh- they should understand what he did with all of these things. And I wrote it for somebody who had, you know, a freshman level reading ability. I didn't want to be too low, uh, but I didn't want it to be, you know, something that was for professional scholars because uh, certainly my experience tells me professional scholars are more apt to poo-poo on to get them to love them. Um, so I, I wanted this to be for the people who would be reading them. So you've, you've taught at a number of uh, different colleges throughout the years. Um, and I, I think we've, again, we've touched on this a little bit already, but has Vonnegut's work influenced your teaching at all? Or have you had the opportunity to teach any of his works? I have. Um, years ago, uh, when I was teaching in Tennessee, I got a shot at uh, becoming... Um, teaching in the philosophy department for one semester and uh, probably because my friend was the chair and he let me teach a class oh, that sounds on Vonnegut only. And I had about 20 students in there and, uh, and that's, that's going back uh, probably 28 years, 27 years. And then I, I've always included him. Uh, I've taught courses on reading banned books. Um, I've always made sure to include Slaughterhouse in that. Uh, I've, I've taught him in high school in AP classes, Mother Night and Slaughterhouse Five, um, even Sirens of Titan. Uh, I have found that I made Vonnegut fans in all those classrooms. Not everybody, but more than half. 
and they had no idea what he was really talking about. And they were really grateful that it wasn't just uh, a made up story about a dope dealer and, you know, that it was actually about stuff, things that they cared about. Um, Why is the world the way it is? Why do we face it the way we do? How do we make our choices? Um, What do we believe in? Uh, And, you know, this is regardless of whether or not you're religious. My last few years of teaching, uh, I was teaching in Boca Raton at a private Jewish uh, high school and teaching them sirens of titan and if there's anything that's going to sort of shake your faith capital f that should be the book and um they read it uh for those who simply wanted to understand it from kurt's point of view they were able to for those who then had questions (laughs) for themselves uh provided a lot of discussions for the rabbis i know that um and but the point is that when one teaches Vonnegut, it's you're not just taking a, you know a flyer at how to teach a novel. Um, his novels are about really life the way we we have to face it with the the, the problems that we have. We don't have his solutions of time travel and things like that, or even a time quake and you know, make us, force us to see everything for the last 10 years happen before our eyes, whether or not we wanted to. We don't have that ability. But he does give us the chance, even when we're young, to think about what kind of perspective do you really hold on this now? And what kind of perspective do you want to hold on your decisions years from now? Which side do you want to be on? And I'll go back to Harrison Bergeron for a second. I want to be on Harrison's side, even though he gets killed. Definitely. You know, I, I really liked um, your description earlier of, of getting to know Vonnegut and it being like encountering a long lost uncle, because I find that when students start reading his works, I think there's a similar experience Um and not just students, I think for anyone reading his works, I think there's a similar experience of it being like you're encountering this incredibly wise, funny, long lost uncle. You know, your kind of ideal long lost uncle, because there's so much. Right, he drops. He drops by. He has a scotch, drops a few words on you, and leaves, and you're left there with your mouth agape, wondering, really. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there's so much wisdom and so much depth in his work, but it's never in a way that feels alienating or... Um, He's never waving his finger at exactly, you. Exactly, yeah. There's, you know, it's wisdom delivered with compassion and humor and warmth. So I think that's, I think that might be why certainly students connect with him maybe in a way that they don't with other writers. There's, you know, there's that warmth, there's compassion and there's humor. Uh, as well as there being, you know, these incredibly difficult, complex themes of, you know, human nature and war and life and death, they're they're delivered with that sort of Midwestern warmth. And, and it's really loving. I mean, one of the things he does, and I mean, Kurt's known for being an atheist, an agnostic, however you want to put it, however you want to you know, define it on that day. But when it comes down to it, 
he understands why some people need religion. And when he talks about people getting released from prison and they wonder what they should do first, and he says, go find a church of like-minded people that will help you and think like you and, and move along to get on with your life. It's not so much that he thinks any particular religious venue uh, has the answer, but if you're the kind of person that has that orientation, then seek it out. Go for what's good in it. He wasn't a religious rejectionist. For him, religion didn't have a place in his life, nor for his children nor for his parents and, and his ancestors, for that matter. They were free thinkers. But he did recognize that other people have different needs, different orientations. And as long as they can go about their search to get through this life in one piece, peacefully, without harming others, and if that's the gospel of that particular religion, then go ahead. So you speak very movingly in the preface, and indeed, uh, you touch on it at other points throughout the encyclopedia, and it's something that we've we've also touched on here throughout the interview. But you talk a bit about your friendship with Vonnegut. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that came about and how it developed over the years? Uh, sure. I, I first found out that uh, Leslie Fiedler knew Vonnegut because he didn't tell me right away. We were in the middle of our studies while I was writing the dissertation and he slipped a book to me called Venus on the Half Shell, yeah. which I'm sure you know. And he said, tell me what you think of this. He didn't tell me anything else about it. And of course you see Theodore Sturgeon on it and the whole deal. And I thought it was a pretty good imitation of Vonnegut. And as it turns out, Vonnegut did give permission to use a character's name. He did not give permission to make a whole novel out of that character. And so what ensued was a, uh, a round of letters. Fiedler found himself in the middle of it for some reason. I I'm, I'm still don't understand that. But it went between Kurt and... Uh, Sturgeon. And this was, you know, Kurt was rather, well, for Kurt, irate. And he doesn't, he didn't really get irate in writing. He, he, he found another tone, if you will. But he was really upset that somebody would then try to pass off um, a character that he had uh, generously granted somebody to use the name of and then they wrote a whole book about it. So he did get disturbed by that. But when I found out that Fiedler knew Vonnegut, life became different. Um, and then I, I waited my time and I told him toward the end of my studies that what I thought I wanted to do. And he said, well, you know, you have to get in touch with Kurt and find out what you can do. So I waited and it, Although I graduated six months before then, uh, I waited till the bound copy of my dissertation came back and I felt official. <laughs> and I wrote Kurt that first letter, which he wrote back so quickly. And then Don Farber wrote to me. And then 
we met the first time about a year and a half later at the Super Author in Residence series in Davenport, Iowa. He was scheduled to make a series of uh, talks at local schools. I was scheduled to speak with about seven or eight other scholars at the public library there. And Peter Reed was there. That's when I first met him. He wrote the first book-length treatment about Kurt in 72. Um, And then I spent the weekend palling around with Kurt and about 10 people he knew, including his uh, documentarian, uh, Bob Whitey, who's since that time, since about 86, 87, had been filming Vonnegut right up until his death, trying to make uh, a documentary about him. And he's in the final stages of editing it now, but he had to bring in another director and editor because Bob went from becoming filmmaker to almost best friends with Kurt. Um, So he had to remove himself because he also became part of that movie, uh, which I'm waiting for to come out now. But Kurt and I uh, got to see each other a few times over the years, but we spoke uh, quite frequently. He would leave messages for me when he just wanted to leave a message. So he'd call me in the middle of the day. Other times when he knew he wanted to catch me, he'd catch me in the evening. And mostly, it wasn't about what he was writing. I, I can honestly say it was never about what he was writing. And it was almost never about my questions for him about his books, because as I said, I did not want that relationship with him. So we, we, it really wasn't a vuncular relationship. He would get on the phone and he would ask me about Marissa and Whitney and how they were doing and my wife, Sarah Lynn. And he was always upset that I was teaching at too small a school. He felt I needed to be at a bigger school where they would back my research because I was doing this all on my own. Um, and, and as I say, he, he really was that uncle that would call me up or see me from time to time. And uh, we would just get to talk about life as we were currently living it, what he was going through, what I was going through, on just a, a real personal basis. And it, it, it wasn't literary at all. You wouldn't know he was an author. You wouldn't know I was writing an encyclopedia about his work. And one year, I remember back in 92... It was just before Hocus Pocus came out. I dropped in on him. I was visiting my sister-in-law on Long Island. I dropped in on him in Sagaponic, where his summer home was. It's about a 300-year-old home. And uh, I rode my bike there. And I didn't have his address, but I knew that uh, all of the names in that neighborhood had their, the, all of the mailboxes had names on their mailboxes. So I'm driving around on my bicycle, and I can't find it. But there was a little post office slash deli on the corner with a bench out front. So I sat down, and I'm eating some of my lunch. And I look to my right, and from the second house over, there's a path. And Kurt comes ambling up the path. And then he, he sees me, and he says, Mark, what are you doing here? I said, Kurt, I came looking for you. I'm, I'm a couple of towns over visiting my sister-in-law. I said, why didn't you tell me you were coming? You could have stayed. I said, I don't want to put you out. I figured you might be doing stuff. I just wanted to drop by and say hello if I could find you. 
So we spent the rest of the day together. Together, we went and picked up You're his okay? uh, his daughter Lily from uh, day school. Brought her back. We had lunch out by his it's pool. It's one o'clock. Sorry about that. Um, lunch by lunch by his pool. We stopped at at the nearby deli and picked up some stuff. And we sat out there, and he's talking to me, and we're talking about books. And that was I gave him at, at that time a hardbound copy of my dissertation, and I said. I know you will never read this and that's okay. And I don't want to be the man from Porlock who, who interrupted Coleridge writing Kubla Khan. So I don't want this to, to ever change what you would write, but I wanted you to have it. And he said, Oh, first off, don't worry. You're right. I wouldn't read it because I wouldn't want to contaminate anything. Wow. Uh, but secondly, I appreciate your writing. So he, he opened it up and he graded it with an A plus and he wrote a comment on it and he gave it back to me. <laughs> and, um, and so we're cracking up and discussion goes on. And then at some point, about an hour later, he just gets up because I want to show you something. And he says, stay here. So I'm sitting at the picnic table by the pool. He goes out into the barn and the barn was his library. And he comes back with a copy of Celine and he starts talking to me about Celine, which he does a great deal in Slaughterhouse. And, um, I probably spent about five hours there that day. Uh, my longest visit with him like that. And, but it was, it really was just like dropping in on, on a relative and having a discussion about things I didn't know about, but that he was very keen to tell me about. And, what I, what I loved about my relationship with him was that it was, although it was stemmed in a literary moment, it didn't grow that way. It was just about the two of us. It was just about people. Um, and he cared a lot about my career and uh, about how long I had decided to spend on his work. He He was worried that there were other things I should be doing to advance. Um, he, he was very considerate of my time, which I thought was ridiculous because I had made the choice to spend my life on him. <laughs> so, and here he's telling me, don't take me too seriously. Um, and, uh, you know, those words were meaningless by then because I, I took him totally seriously as I do today. Um, and so I proudly say when people ask me, you know, what I am, you know, religiously or whatever, I say I'm a Vonnegutian or I say I'm a Jewish Vonnegutian because um, I'm not much of a Jew, but that that's there. But um, And for people who are willing to understand that, and have enough knowledge about his work, they get it. And for those who don't, they they look at me oddly. But uh, you know, ever since I declared, you know, Vonnegut for a dissertation, I'm used to that look. Um, but I, I must tell you that all these years later, uh, knowing how I spent my time uh, creating, you know, these four books, let's say, rather than, you know. 12 books on 12 different people or 
35 articles on, you know, 35 different topics. Um, I think I covered a lot of topics in just one person over my lifetime. And I am quite happy with it. Absolutely. So um, you have your own entry in the encyclopedia because you actually do, you do actually appear in Vonnegut's novel, Time Quake. How did it make you feel to make that journey to Vonnegut's fictional universe, to become a part of that fictional universe? Well, I'd be lying if I said anything other than, wow, I get to make an entry of myself in my own book. <laughs> um, yeah, the meta points of that were, were terrific. I loved it. Um, the really crazy thing about that, however, is something that only few people know about because it's, it's kind of like an embarrassing story that people would never believe. I was working at a computer company at the time in Florida when he, um, Kurt was writing the manuscript for Timequake, the final manuscript. And I knew about it because of Peter Reed. Peter Reed was a much better letter writer with Kurt than I was. And, um, he told me that he had received in the mail, that is Peter did, a copy uh, of the manuscript. He asked me if I had, and it just turns out that later that day in the mail, I received mine. And I started reading it, and I loved it. I got about 25 pages in, and I realized I'm getting a weird vibe. And so instead of reading it word by word, I remember I was at the computer company at the time and I, I closed my door to do this. I took out the manuscript and I started skimming it page by page, just running my hand down it. Miranda, I'm telling you, I knew I was in it. Wow. And I got, I got to that point where the clam bake occurs and I looked up at the woman in my office who was sitting across from me, and she was wondering what I was doing rifling through all those papers. And I let out almost like a eureka moment, like I found it. And I couldn't believe it. And I had to come over and look at it. And I said, this is what I've been doing the last 20 minutes. I don't know how I sensed that I was there. but And I don't even care if anybody ever believes me about it, but I know it happened. And I think at that point, I understood, even in those first 20 pages, I felt my bond with Kurt somewhere in his words. I don't know how else to explain it. And so when I found myself later on at that clam bake, as me, as the encyclopedist, it was about as good a moment as one could get. That's absolutely incredible. So I teach, I, uh, just kind of being a little bit personal here, I've been lucky enough for the last few years to be able to teach Breakfast of Champions on my university's 20th century American literature course. And what I find incredible is that I'm teaching this novel that's set in the 1970s and deals very specifically with the concerns of America in the last years of that post-war economic boom. And I'm teaching this book in Cork, which is a tiny city in Ireland in the second decade of the 21st century. 
but it's always one of the most popular texts that I teach. Students love it. So what what do you think it is about Vonnegut that continues to resonate even all these decades later, even amongst a completely different generation that has absolutely no experience of the world he's writing about? I have always, Kurt, I always found Kurt to be a very fragile writer. And I say that in this way. He really did endure one trauma after another. And it's true, the first one was financial with the depression. And he was, you know, the third of three children. He's the one who didn't go to private school and all of that. And what he thought was a major concern at the time, of course, as his life turned out, he realized was nothing and probably a blessing. But uh, the things that he did endure, his wartime experience, the suicide of his mother and finding her with his sister. um, He had come home from Camp Atterbury nearby Indianapolis for a Mother's Day weekend. And he got there early on the hours of Mother's Day. His sister had already... Uh, been up to see if she was awake and I don't know if she admitted to herself that he was that she was dead or didn't quite know she came back down Kurt went up with her and yes his mother had committed suicide Um, and he had breakfast of champions talks about her zaniness at times you know he grew up with that uh, and that book in particular is about his possibility of going nuts. Um, and I think that book's fragility of mental capacity is probably what your students are finding in Cork. Because uh, I never looked at Kirk as somebody with words from the mountaintop. He was always somebody who was struggling with those demons, which is a very human thing to do, which is why I think people can relate to that book, even as difficult as it is. And with the distractions that it does, like white open beavers and the rest of it. Um, But it is a book about human fragility. And if, as a reader, one is honest, and you start with the supposition that you don't know everything, and that you're not just willing to learn, but to experience, that book really can be quite a head trip because he has let himself open for everything and he is fragile and he's laid it all bare. And, you know, at the end, those words make me young, make me young, make me young. You know, that's a new possibility to try to figure out things all over again, which is why I go back to my dissertation he begins with the naive. He goes through this period ending in resur- or culminating in resurrection. And then he has this epiph- epiphany as, you know, the resurrected. Um, and I think it's because he's always been self-evaluating what the hell just happened. And I think... I don't know that everybody does that. I I think I go through life trying to understand what just happened to me. Um, I know that five years after my own surgery, it's the preeminent question I wake up with every day uh, because it's changed my life completely. And I think that when when one is in touch with their own fragility, 
rather than their fantasy of omnipotence, it's easy to be a little bit more humble and to approach what he says, what Kurt says in his books, with some humility that this is a person who admits by his own words, he is not perfect and he has lived through just horror, terror, despair, heartbreak, indecision on his own. These are all, if these, if this is not the, the human condition, I don't know what is, but he brings them to bear in larger settings, in political settings, in, uh, if not political settings, let's go to Galapagos now and think about not just environmental settings, but the future. What does the future hold for humanity? Interestingly, in that book, the seeds of humanity come from Nazis. And that's our salvation in the end. Who could, who could possibly predict such a wildness? And yet, if one is open to knowledge and humble about what we know ourselves, we have to be willing to accept knowledge where it comes from and wisdom where it makes sense. And Kurt always did this. He was always the most humane of people that way, at least in writing, where he really did care about the people he was writing about, the setting that they were in, the larger controlling influences that create that paradigm, and where this could lead us in a future. So this is probably an impossible question, but... Do you have a favorite work by Vonnegut? Or I know, I, I feel like you're probably asked this all the time, but do you have a favorite or one that you, that you always <laughs> come back to, one that always draws you in? I am asked this question all the time. And, I'm gonna, and the reason I love it is because I have an answer. But for me, having done this work, you can imagine all of Kurt now exists as one. So I'm going to use my Judaism now as a metaphor. I think of Kurt and all of his work as existing on one long Torah scroll. And I am just reading this week's passage of wisdom. Um, in terms of my favorites, well, Mother Night was my first so I guess like with lovers, we always have some sort of romance about it. Um, I am constantly returning to and am awed by Sirens of Titan. Um, and for some reason, whenever I say Sirens, I then go back and I think um, Elliot Rosewater in, in – uh, in that book, um, because that is such a political book. And talk about relevance for our times as the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And, and, and there's not even a thought, you know, from the rich about the poor. If that's not the book of our times right now, I don't know what is. Um, this, this question of identity and who we are, this whole in America, we're going through this crazy right-wing revival. It's always been there, but it's louder now because of Trump. But, you know, we have people hearkening back to real fascist slogans. 
that should be our past, not our future. How do we deal with the mentality that that brings this up now? Well, Kurt faced that, uh, you know, as a, a veteran in World War II, as writing through the Cold War, as watching the craziness of our own civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, the Vietnam anti-war movement, all of these things, he was just a collection point for them. So in almost any of his books, you can find, I would say in any of the books, you can find resonance with our present, if not our future. Um, and yet he, he did this, and this is where I'm glad he created words and new places and things like that, because there was no way in the past to properly explain what he is describing. He is describing a world that is now completely tearing itself apart. And he was doing that then, during the Cold War for the most part. Uh, And if that doesn't have resonance now, especially for Americans, as we have people in our country, unfortunately wearing shirts that say, better Russian than Democrat, this is an existential moment for America. And I think all of Kurt's work spoke to that. I, I think you're very right about this issue of relevance and resonance, particularly at this historical moment. And it really seems that the planet is in a pretty bad place at the moment. And as you say, in America, with the revival of right-wing fascism, do you think there's something we can learn at this particular point in time from Vonnegut's work? Does he have anything to teach us that can maybe help us get through this rather dark time? I think he has more lessons than we could ever all take in. But I think, you know, at the base of it, it really is the golden rule. Treat others as you want them to treat you. And that means even if you're in a capitalist society, there's no reason why corporatism must bankrupt their own consumers. Um, There's no reason... uh, except math, why our secretary of education has nine yachts um, and doesn't really give a damn about education. Uh, People think that Kurt's hard to understand. I challenge them to read the daily paper and to say that that is more sane than what they can find in his books. His books at least provide some explanation or at least an approach toward a schizophrenic society, uh, people without values. Um, Kurt is all about values. Kurt is all about patriotism. Um, I used to give a talk called uh, Kurt Vonnegut from POW to American Dreamer. And as we prepare this week in America to, to bury Senator John McCain, um, I bet John McCain could, could have understood Vonnegut real well because they went through similar terrors. And if we realize that in America, America is so blessed, we do not understand what Europe has gone through. 
you had bombing where you lived. You can point to streets that were bombed out. We can't do that, thankfully. On the other hand, because of that, we have a false sense of our own strength and security. And now, if you take a look at all the people in America who are doing all of these mass shootings, you'd be hard-pressed to find one that isn't a white male. So how has the world gone and become this crazy? People of color might say, well, white people are always crazy. They're always doing this. They were the colonists. And in some ways, they were right. But now when we look at ourselves, in this country at least, a nation of immigrants, truly, and we see that the most horrific violence and terror is not being perpetrated by those from abroad, different colors. It's one color. It's one gender. And it also tends to be one low level of education. When one has a lesser education, there's less empathy. Kurt's all about empathy. It's understanding other people. I really, you know, I really think you're, you've touched on something very important there that within Vonnegut's work, the absurdity and the insanity of his universe is always tempered by a warmth and a compassion and a humor and an empathy that unfortunately isn't always present in our actual world. So I think that's. And more importantly, there's never a rage against it either. He doesn't pick up arms in any of these books and fight the power. He's trying to get through it as a human being. Yeah, there is always that that humanism and that emphasis on the human. And I, I suppose in many ways how difficult it is to be a human being and how overwhelming and terrifying it can be. So, I, yeah, I absolutely think that there is, there is so much in Vonnegut's work that can speak to us as a society and as humans at this time. So I think at this point, I've probably taken up enough of your, of your afternoon. But before we finish up, <laughs> but before we finish up, I'd just like to ask, are you working on anything at the moment or do you have any projects in the pipeline? Oh, this has been a delight. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm working on two projects. One is a screenplay. has nothing to do with Kurt. It's more in the Tarantino vein. Uh, It's very violent with an absurd sense of self-righteousness that makes makes us question our, our own rage against the machine. And um, it's my first screenplay, so I'm feeling my way through it. And I'm also trying to uh, find a publisher who might be interested in having me revise my dissertation. Because as I've looked at the literature, I'm still the only one out there who talked about the structure, structure that is repetitious in all the novels. So I feel like now that I can add the final two novels to it, I can add and revise my dissertation. And I'd, I'd very much like to get that out as a monograph. That would be an absolutely, again, an absolutely fantastic resource because I feel having, having taught Vonnegut's work myself, 
for someone who has been so influential and has produced so much work, there actually isn't as much academic writing on Vonnegut as you would expect. There's an awful reason you know, for, for that. I don't know if you know it over the pond, as we say, but here in America, uh, Vonnegut is viewed in usually one of two ways. Brilliant in the way that you and I are discussing him right now uh, and worthy of, of further study. Or childish, cartoonish, beneath the time of study of real scholars. And this has been a lifelong problem for him, which is why he complained back in the 50s that uh, critics have confused their writing about his books in their file cabinet with the urinal. So uh, I still think that there is that large division. Those who read him and those who are at least interested in hearing what he has to say are usually either younger and more open simply because they are younger or older and better educated, have an understanding about other people's points of view and therefore can understand the empathy that Kurt writes about. Whereas the Neanderthals among us, those who don't have the education, those who don't see the other point of view, those who only see white or only see male, um, they're, to begin with, not educated enough just from an openness standpoint to read this. So it's not going to help them. But it could help the rest of us. So I think that might be a good place to finish up. I wanted to to thank you again for, for joining me on the podcast today. And I suppose maybe to reiterate finally that the Vonnegut Encyclopedia, it was published in 2016 in a revised and updated edition. And I think it's available through most major booksellers. It's available on Amazon and similar similar sites. So if any of our readers are interested in Vonnegut, either as researchers, teachers, academics, or just as fans. It's an absolutely fantastic resource. It's endlessly useful, endlessly edifying and entertaining. So um, it's definitely something that um, Vonnegutians amongst us should be, should be looking at. But I wanted to thank you again just for coming on to the show and talking to me today. I really appreciate it. You've been an absolutely fantastic guest. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for the kind words, both in the book review and today. Um, it really is so heartening after all these decades um, to have an in-depth discussion with somebody who gets it, that when it happens, it just is wonderful for me. You're most welcome. You're most welcome. So thanks again, Mark, for appearing on the show. And I just wanted to thank our audience again for tuning in to the New Books Network. 